Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. According to the CDC, over 60 million women in the United States are living with some form of heart disease. From the American Heart Association, more than one in three women is living with some form of heart disease. Heart disease and stroke cause one in three deaths among women each year, more than all cancers combined. According to the British Heart Association, after menopause, your cholesterol levels can go up, increasing your risk of heart attack and stroke. Your body cannot control sugar levels as well, and this can increase your risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, and weight gain, which we all know as metabolic syndrome. Women have historically been studied less regarding heart disease risk, although that is changing with some very impressive women cardiologists. As women move through the menopause transition, it has been shown that as estrogen levels decline, a woman's CVD risk may increase. Estrogen is heart protective and more is being done to educate and screen women to see if they are good candidates for MHT or menopause hormone therapy. But still, so many women remain confused and overwhelmed by the barrage of information on the internet with misinformation or lack of information provided by their doctors and their current fear-based understanding of taking MHT and getting breast cancer. It's February, which is National Heart Disease Month, and I have a very special guest joining me who will bring some clarity on the topic of midlife women's health and heart disease risk. Dr. Michael Davidson is board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, and clinical lipidology. He's a professor of medicine, director of the Lipid Clinic at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, and serves as the chief executive officer of New Amsterdam Pharma. Dr. Davidson earned his medical degree from the Ohio State University College of Medicine and completed his residency and fellowship in cardiology at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. An active researcher, Dr. Davidson's clinical research background encompasses pharmaceutical and nutritional clinical trials. His extensive research on statins, novel lipid-lowering drugs, and non-pharmacologic risk factor reduction have established him as a world opinion leader. He's a prolific author and lecturer on lipid disorders, nutrition, and atherosclerosis, and has coordinated more than 1,000 clinical trials in areas of preventive cardiology, published more than 250 articles for leading medical journals, and has written three books on lipidology. He has been named one of the best doctors in America for the past 15 years, and was named Father of the Year by the American Diabetes Association in 2010. Ladies, we are in very good hands. 
Here's a medical disclaimer before we start. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or to make any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, open your mind, and let's dive into heart health for women. Hi, Dr. Davidson. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. Hi, Jill. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you here. Of course, it's February, so it's National Heart Health Month. And a lot of women listening are feeling really confused about what they're supposed to be doing for themselves. How should they eat? What should they ask for in terms of labs from their doctor? Who, who do they go see? All the things. But before we dive into all the nitty gritty, how did you become a preventive cardiologist and how does that differ from a regular cardiologist? Sure. Well, for me, it's all personal. My, my father died at age 47 of a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. Um, I was 16. And uh, at that time, I decided that I was already thought about being a doctor. It comes and runs in my family. I'm one of six kids and, you know, five went on to become physicians. So I decided then that I was going to be a cardiologist. Uh, and, um, and, and in medical school, I started doing research on cholesterol and did the first niacin trials uh, at Ohio State where I was in medical school. And then I went on uh, to residency and training in Chicago at Rush. And I started doing work on omega-3 fatty acids, fish oils, and got you know, very excited about lipid metabolism, new cholesterol therapies. I was on the forefront of the of the early, you know, statin trials way back when. Uh, and so uh, I decided that I'd make that a career. And it was unusual at the time to uh, to be a preventive cardiologist. But when I first went into practice in 1986, I specifically dedicated my, my entire practice to prevention. So we set up a nutrition, psychologist, exercise physiologist, all, all aspects of prevention was, was part of our program. Um, of course, uh, I also got very consumed in clinical trials and started doing a lot of research. And so that, that, that kind of was all part of the whole kind of milieu of, of developing new therapies. And so that, that became the, the preventive cardiology specialty, which is still, you know, evolving, but right now, uh, we're a relatively small percent of the, of the total practicing cardiologists in the United States. Yeah, I would agree because what I bring up um, to my clients, maybe we should start building your healthcare team and include a preventive cardiologist. You people are not easy to find. We're, we're, we're this is <laughs> what preventive cardiology means. I mean, one one is um, you know, lipid specialist. You know, that's which is you know part of it, but but also um, also a lot of other aspects of it: exercise physiologist, hypertension, other risk factor management. Right. Imaging, you know how to better use risk stratification with imaging. So that's all part of the whole, you know, preventive cardiology kind of world. Uh, but it, it is a a niche. Uh, but because most cardiologists try to do some aspect of prevention, at least they should, and they kind of know the basics. But when it comes to really understanding complicated cases in particular, uh, you you really should you know re reach out to a preventive cardiologist. I think what might 
be confusing is most people have an internist, right? And so when you go your internist is usually your first stop. And of course they gather your blood work for your annual appointment. And they look at that standard lipid profile, which is something we're going to dive into on this podcast. Um, and then sometimes it just doesn't go beyond there, even though there might be signs and symptoms of heart disease risk for someone. And, it, you know, heart disease is still the number one killer for both men and women. Um, and for the sake of this podcast, talking about midlife women, why is that still there? Like, it, do we bring to the table unique risk factors that affect us in a different way? I think the the, the most challenging part is a little bit historical. Um, the The history is is very uh, unfortunate, and it's very male biased. Um, there was a famous, you know, kind of, you know, the first guidelines that came out were basically uh, recommending lipid therapy only for older men. And so it was the, yeah. the 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 joke was a bunch of old men got together and decided that only old men should get treated for high cholesterol. That was the that, was, that goes back to the 80s, uh, even then. Uh, and it was this kind of belief that women you know, protect, were protected from heart disease. Uh, and, and, that, and that is partially true, uh, but it's changing a lot most recently. But it's about a 10-year lag between you know, when women, on average, get heart disease versus when men get, get heart disease. But that can be quite variable, and, 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 and a lot of factors go into that. That we can talk about, but but in general, you know, women uh, when they get heart disease, you know, tend to have more severe heart disease, and they tend to die more more rapidly of heart disease once they get heart disease. So, in in particular, prevention is even more important for women than it is for men because once they already have heart disease, the prognosis is a lot is a lot worse. And so, what are some of those risk factors that are unique to us? Well, for for women in particular. Uh, it's it, it's it, it's it's lipids, cholesterol, but also uh, perhaps even more so that the triglyceride elevation, low HDL, has always been you know more prominent in women than than it is in men. Uh, uh, so those are those are the two lipid factors. Uh, for and also you know body fat. You know, if, if women who tend to have the uh, you know the, the the apple versus the pear are, are more prone to heart disease. So all those things are are things you should look at. Uh, more importantly, but but also uh, there are many important genetic factors in women, like high LPLA, family history that partic in particular are, are, are very potent risk factors for women uh, that should be screened for. And um, I think what we, we rely on data from 30, 40 years ago when when women had this you know protection, but but now with the whole you know menopause kind of hormone therapy controversy. Yeah. I, I think we're, we're, we're seeing uh, heart disease rates that are, are going up and there's been improvement in male survival and redu reduction, but women less so than men in particular. So there's a big disparity between, you know, what, what we saw in, in, in men getting less heart disease is not, not so true for women getting less heart disease over the last 20 years. So some of the things women are hearing on the internet are in relation to menopause is that estrogen, for example, is cardioprotective. And so as we move through the transition of menopause and our estrogen levels go down, especially for those who decide not to take menopause hormone therapy, um, that this could be a risk factor. Also, pregnancies. How many pregnancies did you have? Um, things like uh, hot flashing, right? So flashing and um, 
a lot of doctors are saying the more flashing that a woman does, even though she may or go on medication for that, um, that's still a risk factor or the early onset of menopause and menses. What are your thoughts on all of that? Well, all, all, so basically, yes. I mean, the earlier you start menopause, women who advance will have premature ovarian failure, you know, their risk is higher. Uh, women who start menopause earlier uh, than women who start later are, are, are at higher risk for heart disease. Um, women who, um, you know, as you mentioned, who have more severe postmenopausal vasomotor symptoms are at increased risk uh, for heart disease. So, um, so there, there, there lies, you know, maybe hormone therapy would be, would be protective. However, um, there's been two famous studies, uh, which I was part of both of them, uh, where, where women who got hormone therapy, uh, postmenopausally, both Premarin and Premarin plus progesterone, uh, failed to show a benefit on cardiovascular disease. Uh, one was a women's health initiative, which is a primary yeah. prevention trial. The other was the HERS trial, which was a secondary prevention trial. Now, the problem for both studies, in my view, uh, is that they both were starting women on hormone therapy about 10 years after menopause. Uh, and so um, that, 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 that impact of that is, 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 is hard to gauge, but it doesn't fit what you would normally do for women you know, post-menopause. You would start with menopause. Uh, and, and if you look at the animal data, which is where it started with in, in many respects, other than the epidemiology, was that if you use hormone therapy in primates during the early phase of, of menopause, you do in fact reduce atherosclerosis, which is the precursor for heart disease. So in general, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I try to be evidence-based and, and, and make sure that it's really important. It's really shared decision-making, but in general, I like to encourage women to use hormone therapy you know, postmenopausally, uh, especially if they have symptoms, of course, that makes all the difference in the world. But um, I still believe there's benefits there. Although, again, uh, from the big trials that were done, uh, we don't have a good answer. And in fact, yeah. I don't think we are going to have an answer, to be honest. It's, it's going to have to be, you know, based on everyone's individual review with their own doctor about what, what the right decision is for them. Yeah. So should a cardiologist if they're seeing someone, even an internist, if they're seeing a midlife woman and this woman comes in and she's complaining about hot flashes and other menopausal symptoms, and he recognizes it on her standard lipid panel, perhaps she has raised triglycerides and LDLs, should that doctor say to the woman, let's get you referred to someone who's a menopause specialist so you can at least get the education and be a, a well-informed patient who can then make a better choice for yourself because that uh, doesn't happen most of the yeah, time. I think, I think that's great advice. I, I have to say though, the, the spectrum of, of expert views on this can be quite confusing. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, to demean it because it's really challenging sometimes to get the right answer. Um, I wish it was a clear cut. It's one of those things in medicine, which is, not there's no clear cut answer about what to do, and you might get a, opinions that are, you know, quite different from each other. So just to yeah. give that in mind, but but I would say, you know, in my opinion, I I think women should not be afraid to use hormone therapy. Um, I I do think um, there might be healthier ways to do it. They should talk with a, with a menopause expert who would who would know that you know what the right 
hormone therapy is for a specific woman for whatever reason. I think you right. know the you know the uh, you know the bioidenticals or the or the transdermal or the patches. There's all different options to consider uh, for what would be best for for a particular woman. And so I think it is it is complicated, but but I would say get yeah get the best advice you can. But especially if you're symptomatic, um, you definitely yeah. shouldn't be afraid to use hormone therapy if if necessary to alleviate the symptoms. Yeah. Well, let's dive into a standard lipid panel because this is what most women are seeing. Um, and by the way, there are many women who don't go to the doctor. And I also think that's another reason why that number of uh, women dying of heart disease is so high because we often tend to take care of all of those around ourselves, but not ourselves. Um, so if you've not been to the doctor and you're listening to this, get there. So a basic lipid panel. Um, this includes things like total cholesterol, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, and a non-HDL. And a woman goes in, she's more of a passive patient, and she sees her results. Her doctor says, you know, good here, good here, not so good here. Take us on a tour of this standard panel, and then we're going to go into a more comprehensive look as well. Um, what do women need to know about this standard panel, if this is all they're getting? Right. So the, the, the most important thing is... Um... They get, they'll get a, a total cholesterol, which is not helpful at all for a woman. Total cholesterol is meaningless. Uh, and so then you get the LDL, which is the low-density lipoprotein, which is calculated from the total minus the HDL with a triglyceride divided by five. It's a formula. If you get an LDL, it's calculated. That's the most important number to, to look at. Uh, and, uh, and that, you know, ideally, you know, should, should be as low as possible. Uh, for for cardiovascular risk, uh, the lower the better for for LDL. Which, uh, what number would that be? Well, it de it depends. I mean, I'd be ideally below a hundred, but depending on other factors, it, it could be should be lower. But also, it can be it can be higher than that and not be so bad. It could it, it may not be a bad thing. So it's really it's really important to look at the other aspects of the lipid profile. In particular, the other two that you get is HDL and triglycerides. So HDL is 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 also controversial and it's also a mis misunderstanding about about hdl years ago you know the framingham heart study you know showed that um, when you looked at total cholesterol divided by hdl the ratio mm -hmm. that was your best your best predictor of risk or the ldl divided by your hdl was your best predictor of risk that came out went out of favor because ldl was established as the causal factor for heart disease ldl is what gets stuck in the arteries and clogs up the arteries and leads to the plaque formation. HDL is thought to be the, the cholesterol that removes the plaque cholesterol and takes it back to the liver to be cleared. However, it's a lot more difficult to, to explain that. It's not what we all always thought it would be. So HDL, you know, typically is higher, the better it's protective, but there are situations where high HDL can be not protective or even harmful. And so we've we've learned not to depend so much on the HDL being high as being protective these mm. days. You have to kind of look at the total picture. So if HDL is, is above 60, which is generally good, and LDL you know, could be higher, uh, and, and as long as there's no family history, um, you're usually in pretty you know, pretty low risk overall, as long as other factors are are, are, are are not present, like high blood pressure or smoking. In particular, family history is important. Uh, and yeah. so we want to understand 
the other risk factor or, or diabetes. Those are the things that you you think about. But um, when you have a high HDL, you should not necessarily disregard a high LDL. And, that, and that's, I think, one of the things that gets in the tr trouble for women. Many doctors have that misunderstanding that as a lipid specialist, I'm often getting got, received uh, feedback. A woman says, my doctor said, don't worry about my high LDL because my HDL is also high and that's protective. It's not, it's not always true. It, it can be true, but it's, but it's not always true. And so it's important to really look at the LDL primarily. Now for women in particular, I mentioned triglycerides and low HDL are very important factors. So you have a high triglyceride above 100 is considered a little, little high. Above 150 is high. Above 200 is certainly high. Fasting, you know, because triglycerides can be very much impacted by what you've eaten recently. And so you should be fasting. Yep. But triglycerides above 200 is a very powerful risk factor for, for women. If, a woman. If anything, the data would suggest that might be one of the, mean, the most important risk factors for, for premature heart disease in women was triglycerides that are elevated. But but the truth of the matter is what triglyceride elevation means typically is that you have a low HDL or dysfunctional HDL, the, you know, this, the, the protective cholesterol or potentially protective, but also more importantly, you have a lot more LDL particles. You have a lot more, your LDL cholesterol that you have is not what you really think it is. It's actually a lot higher. You have a lot more particles and these particles tend to be small and dense particles, which are much more likely to clog up the arteries. So, um, we get the standard lipid profile. You know, if you have, you know, a high LDL and a high HDL, you got to understand, you know, the balance there. Um, but if you have a high LDL and a high triglyceride and low HDL, that's a that's a bad combination where you really need to dive in more carefully into uh, what to do next. So, if a midlife woman has an optimal-looking standard lipid panel, is that good enough? Should she stop there? Or should she continue to pursue a more comprehensive panel, which we're going to dive into um, with her doctor? I think most importantly is, is family history and other risk factors. Uh, and so if that woman has longevity, no, 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 no premature heart disease in the family, and a really good lipid profile, LDL below 100, HDL above 60, triglycerides below, below 100, you know, no, no. Uh, no other risk factors, no diabetes, no hypertension, doesn't smoke. They're, they're almost always okay at that point. But there is one thing missing uh, called LP little a, which you, you would not get uh, unless you did the, the more advanced lipid testing. But that's typically in the setting of a family history. And so without any family history, it would be unusual to have that be elevated uh, as, a, as a single factor that you want to still consider. So in the absence of any family history and an excellent lipid profile and other risk factors, I think for most women, that's going to be fine. That's really fine. Unless they really want to dive in just to be sure and get the more advanced testing. Uh, but in general, I, I would say for the vast majority of those women, they're going to be fine and not, not, not have to worry about heart disease. Okay, great. So now we have someone like myself who does have heart disease in two generations on both sides, and um, my genetics are not ideal as well. Um, so for someone like me, looking at an advanced or a more comprehensive lipid panel is super important. So talk about that LP little a for someone in terms of me and what does that mean? Actually, you know what? I might bring up my blood work, my Boston heart. Okay. Um, so people can see that. So if you're listening, I would jump on over to 
my YouTube channel so that you can see this. So this is from Boston Heart, which is a really well-known lab and right. they do very comprehensive, um, looking at comprehensive biomarkers. And we're gonna break down some of this, not all of it, we're not gonna get into the weeds. But here at the bottom, we so at the top is the standard lipid panel and then the middle section, here's where our LP little a is. So talk about that. Yes, your LP laser is great, less than 15, which is uh, which is perfect. I mean, I, there's, there is some evidence that really low LPLA can be a risk factor for diabetes, but it's that's pretty weak association. So I think you're really that's really good to have LPLA less than 15. So they, they, you're good there. And so when you look at your your profile, uh, you know the more advanced lipid testing, uh, you you see the high LDL 135, the high HDL 82, and uh, ApoB, which is the more accurate risk predictor. 102, but you also have you know, more small dense LDL, which is unusual for a thin woman like yourself. So th this could be a genetic factor here as well that we could talk about. Yep. Uh, and then um, when we look at your HDL mapping, we can look at HDL functionality. There is some impairment there. So you do have some impairment in, in maturing HDL effectively. And you all, it looks like you're uh, your hyper absorber. So we get all that, all that is important information that we can apply. It's actionable for what we yeah. can do. Talk to... about what ApoB is though. What does this mean? Why is this an important biomarker? So ApoB is the amount, it's a more of a measurement of particles. Uh, so we, we, we typically measure like LDL here is milligrams per deciliter weight per volume, milligrams weight deciliter volume. So weight per volume of, of cholesterol. But what's more accurate is ApoB, which is measuring the number of particles per volume, protein per volume. And so the, every LDL particle has one ApoB. And so when you have, when you have a, a lot of LDL particles, you tend to have a, a higher than expected ApoB. Now in your case, your ApoB and your LDL are in sync with each other. So there's no what we call discordance. That's okay, that's good. You don't want it to be discordant. In other words, your LDL is 135, your ApoB is 102. That's what you'd expect for 135 LDL. So you don't have a lot more particles than expected based on this analysis. So you, your your ApoB is is elevated, but it's also your LDL is also elevated. What you worry about is an LDL that's not as elevated as you think, but ApoB is actually quite high. That's that's a that's not a good combination. They have a an LDL that's not elevated and and the ApoB that is very elevated, that, that means a lot of small particles. So, but but the, what happens is when you have discordance, in other words, when one is high and the one is low and the other is high, the risk goes with what the ApoB tells you. So ApoB does tell you the a better risk predictor. And this is both, something, this is something you really need to ask for. It's not going to come in a standard panel. No. And we can have ApoB or you can have LDL particles, NMR, LDL particles. They, they tell you the same yeah. information. So, so I think you, you often see LDL particles at, at Quest or LabCorp, which are more common yeah. than Boston Heart Lab. But 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 what, what, what's important is what's called, like I said, was was is discordance. When you have one out of line with the other, and, and when you have discordance, whatever the ApoB is, tells you the risk for, for yourself. A, ApoB is the predominant risk predictor over LDL. So, so far in looking at this, would you think something genetic is going on behind the scenes? Because I am a very healthy person. I've been living a healthy lifestyle for 40 years, a really long time. Yeah. So that definitely, I mean, LDL is high. 
uh, not sky high. Your HDL is good, uh, but you can see when you actually look at the mapping of it, it doesn't look as protective as you think it should be. So that's how I would I would look at it as some dysfunction on the HDL side. That's why you can't always go by a high HDL being protective. In your case, it's mm -hmm. probably not, not protective or may not be as protective as you think. Right. And I'm at an 82, well over the 60. Right, right. You would think right. that's a great HDL, but you can see yeah. by the actual functionality assessment, it doesn't, it's not working like it. You want to see, basically, it's a garbage truck that, that picks up garbage. You want to see it keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so in your case, it kind of doesn't quite as get as big as it should be in that middle stage there, the, mm -hmm. the, the alpha two HDL. Yep. And so I think this, this is really interesting. The Boston heart cholesterol balance test. And I want to talk about this because most of the women I work with have never heard of this. And when I send them to their doctors, because I, I can tell through their, um, health history form that there is a family history, right. Or I can look at their standard lipid panel and, and see if there's any, um, signs of, uh, risk there. So I'll, educate them on what the Boston heart cholesterol balance test is. And we talk about it. So they're more equipped to go in and have that conversation, but break this down for us because I, this, I found this out about myself over 10 years ago and started on, um, a medicine for it, which we're going to talk about different medicines too. Right, right, right. Yeah. So you, the last, the last and demesterol are both synthetic markers. So you you're increasing, you have increased cholesterol synthesis, which, which is explain the high LDL, but also your hyperabsorber of cholesterol. You take beta-cytosterol you know, beta as a plant sterol uh, that um, is typically uh, not well absorbed. Very little gets absorbed. But when you have you're on your hyperabsorber of cholesterol, you also hyperabsorb these plant sterols called beta-cytosterols. They're very rare. Uh, genetic disorder in which you super high absorb it and you get premature heart disease, not from cholesterol, but from uh, beta cytosterol, basically. So it, it can cause you know premature heart disease, but not this is not this is not what you have, but it can it can it can be the case. Yep. So when we, you're one interesting side comment, um, yeah, shrimp, uh, shrimp is thought to have a lot of cholesterol. It turns out it's not cholesterol. It's it's called brascatrol, which is a a non-absorbable sterol. Uh, so people were avoiding shrimp many years, you know, for many years, we thought it was a high cholesterol food, but it turns out it's a non-absorbable sterol. So shrimp is actually a good food to eat on a, on a low cholesterol, you know, low fat diet. Uh, that's one I love that you just said that because my mother and I have this discussion and it's a debate every time I love shrimp and eat a lot of it. She will not touch it. Right. And so back to the overproducer, when you're an overproducer, does this mean because all of our cells in our body can make the amount of cholesterol that our body needs. And, and we're going to talk about cholesterol, right? So does this mean my cells are all, are just making too much cholesterol? Uh, yeah. I mean, you have the enzyme uh, that overproduces cholesterol. You have just active, overly active enzymes making cholesterol. That's what it, it's mostly in the liver though, primarily where that's being made. But, and, but, all, cell, but all cells can do it. The brain Yep. Yeah, every every cell can, can make its own cholesterol, which is important to know because we always talk about getting LDL levels down, a low, very low cholesterol. You worry about what does that mean for cellular cholesterol metabolism, but all the cells can make their own cholesterol anyway. It's, so you don't need it. You don't need it in the blood to get to get the cholesterol you need for, for certain things like hormones and things like that. You don't need that blood cholesterol for that reason. Which brings me to being a hyper absorber. 
is this based on dietary cholesterol or based on the cholesterol your body's making or both? It's, it, it's primarily from what your intestinal cells uh, absorb, uh, which is, but most of it is not dietary. It's, it's your biliary. It's also from your bile, your biliary cholesterol. So very little of it is actually dietary cholesterol. Uh, right. So and, I've always read that we absorb it somewhere between 10 and 15% of the dietary cholesterol. Right, right. Dietary cholesterol has very little impact actually on your blood cholesterol. Uh, and that's why, you know, many have advocated that it doesn't really matter about eggs or, um, or, or, or uh, you know, all these high cholesterol foods it doesn't really impact your cholesterol that much. There are some exceptions, like in your case, because you're a hyperabsorber. Um, I would say that's a different scenario because um, you, you there are certain genes that make you hyperabsorbers of cholesterol. So for you, based on that analysis, I wouldn't recommend, I, I wouldn't say you can have eggs. Okay. That's okay. No, no big deal if you have them a few times a week, but, but you're not the kind of person that should have it two or three eggs a day, that, that kind of thing based on, on that analysis. Um, that's how I would look at it. But for most people, it's not a, not a problem to have eggs and, and it doesn't matter whether they take egg or egg yolks. But some people have this real strong aversion to any egg yolk whatsoever for cholesterol reasons. And that doesn't have to be the case for most individuals. That is excellent because so many women struggle with getting in enough protein and those healthy fats. And eggs are such an easy and inexpensive way for um, women to amp up their dietary protein. Um, so let's talk about medications to help someone. There are so many functional medicine MDs out there who are so anti-taking medicine, um, especially anti-statins. And, you know, I certainly felt confused about statins myself. Um, for the listeners, that blood work was taken in 2023. I have since gone on a low-dose statin of five milligrams a day, and I have had blood work, and all of my numbers have completely improved, like drastically improved, which is really important. Um, I have five kids. I know my why. My why for longevity is to be there for my kids who are going to have a ton of, I have five, you're, you're one of six, I have five. They're going to have a lot of grandkids. So I want to be around. I want to have an active life. I want to age really well. Um, so that's my why. Um, so I made the decision and my numbers fell into place, which was great that my body had such a, a positive response to the medication. But let's talk about statins because in the functional medicine world, that is just a no-no, just never going to statin. But as you can see, there are these huge genetic um, components to think about and acknowledge. Right, right. right. Statins, I, I, I'm really... Uh... I, listen, I'm always open for people what their preferences are. And I, I try to work with if people don't want to take a stat, you know, what try to explain to them, you know, what the why what the why they're making that decision. But to be honest, I mean, stands have probably the most research of any drug ever uh, when it comes to anything in medicine. We have thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. They're, these are very safe medications. Um, and uh, they're very generally very well tolerated. Uh, so I, I, I think people should not be afraid to use stands. Now we could obviously want to use lower the lower the doses, the better the uh, to uh, to minimize any any side effects. But they're 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 generally very very safe medicines, and they've been have proven benefits in reducing heart disease. 
I'll just tell you one, one story from my own personal experience. So my father died, I mentioned at 47. Uh, I was 16. My brother uh, was 14. We both had our cholesterols tested because of the premature heart disease. We both had horrible lipid profiles. I was a skinny 16 year old. He was a skinny 14 year old. So um, fast forward, I've been doing research on medical school. My brother also went to medical school, became a, a family doctor. He decided to become a vegetarian in his early 20s. I decided to take a statin in my early 20s just to, because I was, did the research on it. Not, not early 20s, late 20s, because I was late 20s when I started taking a statin. And, uh, and, I, and I was always very you know, cognizant of taking the statin. And then fast forward age 44, my brother, vegetarian, develops very severe coronary disease and needs a bypass at age 44. Mm. Now he's on a stat and he's doing, he's doing much better. Uh, I uh, now in my 60s uh, have had CT angios every five years and I have no coronary disease. And I just think that starting the statin younger life was, was all the difference in the world between having premature heart disease and not. So I think starting statins young in life um, and, 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 and I think the earlier, the better, uh, and as far as very strong family history situations are concerned, uh, to prevent heart disease. Now we have so much safety data on statins. Remember, statins came out in 1987, and it's been you know, tracked you know, ever since then. It's millions and millions of people, a lot of research on long-term side effects, and, and nothing really has come up meaningfully about statins that have concerned. The only thing uh, I would say is there's a little bit increased risk of diabetes with statins, but it's a very low risk, but, but the re reduction of mortality is well present still. Uh, and, um, and there are uh, your rare circumstances where you get more liver enzyme elevations and muscle enzyme elevations, but those are dose related. And so by giving a low dose statin, uh, you can really uh, get the, both the safety and, and the efficacy for most people that you need you know, to maximize the, 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 the risk benefit ratio that you have. But I would say that the stands are great drugs and you wanna start them as early as life as possible to, to reduce risk is a, is a clear <laughs> recommendation. Um, with that said, I mean, there are other ways to lower LDL for those that don't wanna take a statin uh, that we can, we can talk about. I can, yeah, please. Okay, so I think one thing for those that do want natural products, there is red yeast rice, which is a, uh, which it's not a stat. Everyone thinks it's got a stat. It used to be spiked with statins in the early days, but now they, they don't do that anymore. It's truly a, a natural product. It comes out off plants, yeast in India, and uh, it's, it's, it's safe and low dose. It's a really a low dose medicine, and that can be an option. We do use that all the, uh, often for those that can't tolerate statins. Um, People also talk about berberine, which is a Chinese herb, and the date on that is relatively mixed, but I have tried it, and sometimes it does work. But also plant sterols and stanols. These are, these are dietary supplements. You can get them as gummies or pills, and they work by blocking cholesterol absorbed. Those are all natural products. So um, there is what's called the, uh, the portfolio diet, which is, which is basically... Uh, soluble fiber. I, I did the I did the first work on oatmeal, oat bran, lowering cholesterol back in the '90s. That was my one of my most famous studies way back when. Uh, so oat bran, soy protein, um, plant sterols, and stanols. Those three things together can lower your LDL in the 25 to 30 percent range. 
It's called the pork mm. diet. And so that that's an option for people who don't want to take any medicines whatsoever. So it's, but it's a lot of oatmeal, oat bran. It's a, it's a lot of, you know. Yeah, but at a, the same time, oatmeal can also spike someone's blood glucose levels, especially someone like me. I'm always been, I've been pre-diabetic for, you know, 15 years. I have half a thyroid for the last 25 years. So um, even though I am lean and, and fit, I still face these blood glucose spikes. Yeah, no, uh, you know, oatmeal oat brand is it's a, it's a carb you know it's a carb yeah. like else and you got to be careful but but you know i think that's that's that, that's one option to consider yep. the other is azetamide zedia which is a cholesterol absorption inhibitor which very, i've been taking for yeah, 10 years yeah very safe drug because you cut yeah. in the hyperabsorption profile yep. but for those that that um that need uh um a medicine that's just again very safe effective not very mo modest benefit only 15 to 20 percent That'll be alluring, but I use it also, and often I take it myself in combination with my statin. You know, they work very well together, uh, the two drugs together. Uh, and then um, there are other drugs, but we don't. They're older drugs like niacin and cholestyramine, bioacid resins, and then and I, people think about niacin being natural, but it really isn't. I, I was on ni I did all the research on niacin in the years past, and it's it does work. Uh, it, it is a vitamin per se. We're giving, but we're giving pharmaceutical doses which has side effects. It has, li especially liver toxicity. I've seen some of the worst liver toxicity among people taking high dose niacin. So you gotta be careful with it. You gotta be careful not to overdose niacin, especially the uh, the sustained release niacin. Unless you use you know, safe versions of that, you can get liver issues. And so, but generally I would say, I would avoid niacin as a self-administered, you know, dietary supplement type approach for, for lowering uh, cholesterol. Yeah, I tried that many, many years ago. My functional medicine doctor had me try that and I had that flush and that was the end of that. I tried yeah, it right. once and never went back. Right, right. <laughs> I took it for 10 years before there was oh, so Oh my goodness, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about some other additional testing like a CAC scan or genomic testing. Um, I know we're coming to a close pretty soon here, but should midlife women and men for that say, get a CAC scan. What is a CAC scan and, and um, should we be doing it? Yeah, so it's a coronary calcium score. It is one of the most valuable tests um, if you're at the right age. I mean, for, for people below 40, it has very little value because you should be zero and then you, 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 we don't recommend it below 40. And really for women, it should be, it should be 50, you know, anything, any woman below 50, it's, it's really not always that helpful. Um, but if you have any calcium plaque, it's, it's calcium is plaque. And then when, it, when plaque heals, it becomes calcified. Calcified plaque itself is not what you worry about. It's the underlying plaque uh, that, that, that gets calcified. So when you have a lot of high calcium in your, in your arteries, you may have a lot of plaque in general. It's, it's a, the association is there. That's one of our best tests for determining whether someone wants to be, should be on a statin or not. So if someone comes to see us and uh, they have, their LDL is high and they want to know whether they should start, they, they want to start a statin. We can say, go ahead and start a statin. It's safe and so forth. That's fine. But most people want confirmation that they really need it, which I, yeah. I, I understand. And so in that situation, we go through a lot of other factors, uh, including family history, other risk factors and so forth. Uh, CRP, an inflammatory marker, uh, yeah. very important for women in particular. If a woman does have evidence of inf inflammation, then then taking a, a statin for lowering their LDL is even more advisable. But um, the best test 
is the, is the coronary calcium scan. It's, it's relatively inexpensive. It's $150, uh, non-invasive. It's relatively low radiation. And it can pick up plaque and, and uh, any, any calcium at all should be a strong indicator that you should be on uh, cholesterol-lowering therapy. Um, the higher the score, the, you know, the, the greater the plaque, uh, and the younger the age you have plaque, the, you know, the higher the risk in general. So you want to you wanna really um, uh, use the score in, in, in conjunction with all the other factors as well anyway. But yeah. I, I think it's, it's one of the best ways to uh, give somebody the, the confidence or, or the confirmatory reason that they should be on a statin. Yeah. Although when I took the CAC scan um, test a few years ago, my score was a zero, which by the way, if you aren't familiar with the scoring, zero is optimal. It's the best, right? right. You don't want to be up from zero, but obviously so many people could be in the hundreds. They could be in the 60 range, 80 range. I mean, everyone's different. Um, so again, looking at all of these confounding factors, all of your uh, family history, your genetics, and making that decision for yourself is so important, but getting the right information in order to get to that decision is what you have to have. Right. So Dr. Davidson, one last question for you. Is there an optimal heart healthy diet and what is it? Yes, I think I'm going to hedge on that because there's not, there's not a right diet for everyone. I mean, that's the thing. And so I would say that if you're prone to metabolic syndrome, you know, diabetes, you know, we tend to, we tend to push uh, lower carb, you know, kind of Mediterranean diet approaches um, that, that seems to work the best. If you have, you know, a very high LDL and you're thin, we, we, we do, we do push the lower saturated fat diets uh, you know, in, in that situation. Uh, so, but I would say one thing uh, that, you know, diet is very important. No, I don't want to downplay it. It's extremely important, but genetics are actually a lot more a factor than people realize. And I, and I, that's one of the things I, I try to explain to patients is that uh, I, they say they eat everything there. They don't, they don't touch uh, any piece of meat or they don't have any eggs and my cholesterol is still too high. What am I doing wrong? A diet's important, but it's only one aspect of the overall reasons why their their LDL levels are high. So there are there are certainly dietary things to do, but but I would say don't don't get discouraged if whatever you do dietary wise doesn't seem to be effective. That's one message I'd like to leave you with as well. Because genetics are are there, uh, we do start doing that more often now, and I think what the future will be, we can, I think. Uh, soon because we're already doing it right now but we're but it'll be more widely available we can maybe tailor dietary advice you know based on what the genetics like in your situation you're you're yeah. you're an absorber you're thin you you do have pre-diabetes so you should be careful about carbohydrates uh we can do that from the genetic testing we can find out what genetic factors you have that that predispose you to, to diabetes and why you might be more carb sensitive uh than others so i think that's the future really is to using it's called nutrigenomics to mm -hmm. understand, you know, why you respond to foods in a certain way while others can, can easily do it. Like the, like the, like the keto diet, the carnivore diet, you know, for some people might be okay, which I don't, I don't, we, we never recommend it by the way. We don't, we don't recommend it because we don't know the long-term effects of these very right. high fat diets. Uh, but we don't, we don't stop people 
if they really are dedicated to do it. Uh, but we have found many examples, though, where the keto carnivore diet has led to severe elevations of LDL cholesterol, and, and that and that is harmful. We we have, we have found some genetic factors responsible uh, uh, for that, and so. Um, I, I would say that uh, in general, you know, Mediterranean is what people talk about as being, you know, the healthiest diet of whole grains and fruits and vegetables and and uh, and, and lower carbohydrate content, lean protein sources. Those are all, you know, very healthy. Very very low fat vegan diets are extremely healthy, also. Uh, and and there, there, there's, so there's a spectrum of healthy diets. I would say, yeah. You, yeah, you don't have to be on a vegan diet to be the most healthy. It, it, right, think, and also people on a vegan diet. It, they need to be aware that they have to do it in a specific way so that they are getting a lot of nutrients and they're going to require certain supplementation that they're right, not certain right. nutrients they're not getting from animal protein. And, I, and I, I've seen examples of vegan diets where it's, it's really been exacerbating the metabolic syndrome yeah. uh, type of parameters that we look at uh, for risk, which are, we mentioned the high triglyceride, low HDL. Yeah which can be that detrimental. So I, what, I guess the, 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 the bottom line though, is diet needs to be tailored as well. What people's preferences are, what their food choices are and, and try to find a diet that they enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and that is healthy. That's, that's really the bottom line for and that's, for, that's where health coaches come in. We can help right. people stay accountable and um, make things easier for them and uh, create that plan with small steps that are going to help them reach that bigger greater health vision that they have. Um, I love that you're talking about individualizing someone's uh, diet. I look at genetics and I, one of the panels I look at is called diet and lifestyle. And it can tell me about gluten and dairy and um, if there's histamines and other environmental contributing factors. And so I really love that you also look at genetics, very different genetics than I look at, um, which I also did with you, which were super eye-opening. And I'm going to have to have you come back on so we can just dive into genetics. Okay, sure. Yeah. No, thank you very much. It's been a joy, really, to talk to you. About oh, all. thank you so much. So appreciative of your time. And I know there's a lot of women out there feeling a lot better and um, just taking a nice deep breath and being able to sort through this information will be so helpful on their health journey. So thank you, Dr. Davidson. Thank you, Jill. Really, really enjoyed it very much. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.